Father, we thank you for this time that we have to come together again to uh, look at a look at the parable of the two sons. I pray that as we um, take a deep look at this parable, we gain insights and wisdom into it that we would um, be able to then apply it to our lives and we would be able to live it out uh, as we look at uh, belief in action. And so I pray that you would give us again wisdom in these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you turn to Matthew 21, which is where we will be yet again, I'm actually going to read from Exodus 24. I'm going to start in verse 4. It says, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Now I read this in light of our text today, because as we go through history, we should all be familiar with the people of Israel. And there are many times in which they were the very opposite of what they said they would be, and that is they were disobedient. And when we get to the time of Christ, we see that disobedience there still, except for it's kind of in a different perspective. That is, they were disobedient in the fact that they took their traditions and they elevated them over and against the word of God. That's why when we get to the triumphal entry and we see the cleansing of the temple, Jesus casts them out. And he calls, He says they've made the house a den of robbers. That's why when in verse 14 of chapter 21, when he's healing and he's doing all these miracles and all these wonderful things, and he hears the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. The religious leaders were indignant against him. That's why the fig tree is cursed. Because they were no longer bearing fruit. That is why when we get to the authority of Jesus being challenged, as we looked at last week, they're asking the son of God their Messiah, who they've been waiting for since the beginning. They ask him where his authority came from. And let's get a little backdrop again. Let's read verses 23. And when they entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And so they ask him a question, and he asks ones in return. And he will answer their question if they answer his. And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say for man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
And so they were unwilling for the reasons they gave, remember, from heaven, because then that would show that John and his message were both true, that he truly was from heaven, that then, because of that, because John made the way for Jesus and he hailed him to be the Messiah, therefore that would make his message true. So they couldn't say from heaven, they couldn't say from man either because they were afraid of the crowds because people held him to be a prophet. Now, that leads us into the parable because he goes right into it. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first son. He said, go, in the work, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son, and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And it's kind of an interesting parable. When I was first studying this, I was like, how do these two things connect? And we'll see how they connect Um, briefly, Jesus kind of gives us the answer. But we're going to look at belief and how it is active. Belief is active. That is my first point of two points. And it's active in understanding God's desires. Now, when you're looking at this again, he says, what do you think? That is, it's an extension of the previous thought. And so he's connecting what they were asking about authority and what he said there to this parable. And the parable is pretty simple to understand. We can all pretty much get a good idea of what he's talking about here. There's a man, he has two sons, and he goes to the first one, and he says, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son says, no. <laughs> but then later on, he changes his mind, and he goes. And then he has another son, he says the same thing, and that son says he's going to go, and he never does. And so they both, they do the exact opposite of each other. And he asked then the Pharisees and the scribes, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said the first. And so that is the right answer. And they clearly understand what the idea is. The premise of the parable is which one did, uh, which one did the action that the father was desiring? Which one did the will of the father? And the first son, even though he says he didn't want to do that, Eventually, he did go and do what the father asked him to do. And so the first answer is the correct answer. There's a few other interesting things when we look at this parable. It says, but afterward he changed his mind and went. That is the first son. And that changed his mind has this idea of remorse. Remorse specifically for that action that took previously, which was that he said, I will not go. And so he felt remorse for that. And because of that remorse, he then goes and does the will of his father. This word only comes up a few times in scripture, only five times. The other time is here in this passage later on. The other, another time is with Judas when he returns the silver pieces for that he traded for Jesus. He returns it. It says he changed his mind. It's the same word that is used here. And so there's this idea of a remorse for an action. Judas had remorse for that action which he had, which was selling Jesus for those silver coins. And so he changed his mind. And so this son has remorse, and he changed his mind. 
And the other son, looking at him, it says, I go, sir. And in the Greek, there's this idea that he never really planned to do it to begin with. He just was like, yeah, I'll go and do it. And he never really had the plan to go and do it. And so we go very interestingly from authority to this parable of two sons, one of them obedient and one of them not. And Jesus kind of points to the fact that the real issue here is belief. And we get that because he says in verse 32, we'll get here eventually, but for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. Now, in the parable, the two sons represent two people. The first son is the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And the second is the religious leaders of the day. And so we're going to see our next... um, So he, continuing on, it says, They said the first, and Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes... Go into the kingdom before you, kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe him. And so again, they're the tax collectors and the prostitutes are the first people who initially didn't believe, didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And then they heard about Repentance. They heard of John the Baptist's message. They heard of Jesus's. And then they change their mind and they go and follow him. Unlike the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders who are the ones who said, I will go. They say one thing and then they never do in the end. And so Jesus points to them. You are the ones who aren't going to go into the kingdom of heaven. That those tax collectors and those prostitutes are the ones who are going to go before you. That is, they are closer to God because they understand their position before him than you. I want to point out before we get any more further into looking at that, Belief is the idea that belief is active in doing God's work. Now, when you get back to the beginning, it says a man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. Now, when I initially was reading this, I kind of sadly glanced over it. And then I was reading um, a commentary that pointed four points on this. It was by Boyce, but he actually originally got it from William Taylor. And I actually want to share those points with you. Today, And so four points in doing God's work. And the first one is there is work to be done. He says, go and, wor- uh, go and work in the vineyard today. That is what we are called to do. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Uh, we are called as believers to be active in our faith. And for good reason, too. I was looking up statistics about people in the world, and there are, according to Google, which is always correct, but according to Google, there are around just shy of 8 billion people in the world today, and so I was thinking, wow, that's a lot of people, Um, quite a few people, and then I was trying to find up 
how many Christians there are in the world today. And that was a very hard, obviously, we kind of have to give them a little leeway with this one. Um, but somewhere around 2 billion people in the world are Christians, or say they are Christians. Um, that includes all forms of religion that would be under the category of Christian. And so, let's say, I would say we could get rid of half, probably 1 billion of those people who say they are, but really do not believe. But we can be liberal and say there's 1.5 billion people who are Christians. Now, that may sound like a lot, but in, in light of 8 billion people, um, that's a lot of people. That is a lot of people who need to hear the gospel today. That is 6.5 billion people who need to hear the gospel. And so there's a lot of work to be done in the world today for believers. That's why Jesus says himself, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And we need to keep that in mind. We need to keep that number in mind as we go into the world today. As we leave church and we see people, we need to keep in mind that six and a half billion people in the world do not know Christ. So there's a lot, a lot of work to be done. And the work is God's work. He says, go work. This is the Father telling him, go and work in the vineyard today. Now, many people go to work, and they work very hard in their lives, and they can spend all of their life working, and sadly, a lot of people can spend their whole life working not for God, but working for themselves. They are often so invested in their own work that they forget to do God's work as well. And we need to be focused on the task at hand, God's task. And you're hearing me and you're probably thinking, well, Pastor Caden wants me to grab a tent and live at the church so that I can always be doing the work of God. That is not what I'm asking. I don't want a bunch of people living here. So, but it, does, it doesn't mean you have to live here at church. Um, but it does mean as you go, you go and work for God. Your main priority is still God, even as you leave this building, even as you go out into the world, even as you're working. Your priority is doing the work of God. And that doesn't mean always sharing the gospel, but it means being a light in a very dark place. And then when those opportunities arrive, then you take those opportunities for those people and say, yes. I do have a Savior, and would you like to know him? And so we need to be that light in a dark world. And I was actually thinking about this, and I wanted to give an example of this. And as I was thinking about it, it was, I started to think about Paul. And if you go to Acts 18, right in the beginning there, Acts chapter 18, verse 1, it says, After this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and he worked, for there were tent makers, or they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Now, he's a pretty good example because Paul, we usually don't think about it, he had a means of income. 
his trade was tent making. And the question we have is, do you think Paul just, as he was making the tents, turned off his apostleship and he was like, well, I'm just going to make tents now and I'm just going to do my own little thing and make my own little means and then later on I'll go to the synagogues and I'll go preach? Or do you think he had the mindset of everything I do, even working here with Priscilla and Aquila, is for God and his glory? And so the mindset would be that no matter where he was doing or what he was doing, he was going to do it for God, whether it was making tents or whether it was preaching in the synagogues. And that's the kind of attitude we need to have if we are going to be a witness in the world today. And again, I'm not saying that you have to go tomorrow to your workplace and go share the gospel right off in the stage in front of everyone. And we do need to be courteous of the fact that people are paying us to work. But also, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be a light in a dark world. When people look at you in the workplace, they should still say, oh, yes, he is a believer. And then at some point when they need you because they're going through something difficult, you can say, you should get to know my Savior. So in doing God's work, there is a lot of work to be done. The work is God's work. The Father tells him, go and work. And the work, uh, the need is now. He says, go and work in the vineyard tomorrow or next week or next month. No, he says, go and work in the vineyard today. The need is now at this point in time. Again, there are about one and a half billion Christians, which means there is about six and a half billion people who do not know Christ today. That if they died today, they would not be in heaven. So the work is now. And actually, there's a good illustration about this from D.L. Moody. It says, on Sunday night, October 8th in 1871, D.L. Moody was preaching in Chicago to the largest congregation he had ever addressed up to that time. His text was, what shall we do with, the, uh, with Jesus who is called Christ? At the end of his sermon, he said something like this. I want you to take this text home with you and turn it over and over in your mind. Next week, we will be talking about Christ's death on the cross. And we will decide what to do with Jesus of Nazareth. The worship leader began to sing, Today the Savior calls, for refuge fly, the storm of justice falls, and death is nigh. But the hymn was never finished. While the worship leader was singing, there came a roar of fire engines on the street outside, and before morning, Chicago lay in ashes. It was the night of the great Chicago fire. Moody testified that to his dying day, telling the congregation to wait until the next week to decide what to do with Jesus, he said, I have never dared to give an audience a week to think about their salvation since. We don't know what is going to be happening tomorrow or the next day in our own lives or for those people who need to know Christ. And so the work is now. And so in doing God's work, we need to remember work to be done. The work is God's work. It needs to be done now. He says, go and work in the vineyard today. 
And last of all, it's the duty of the son to do the father's bidding. He says, son, go and work. Son, you know what we are? We are daughters and sons of Christ, of God. We are his heirs. It is our duty to go into all the world and preach the gospel today because there's a lot to be done. And this is kind of easy to think about when you're a kid. When I was a kid, my dad was obsessed with taking out the trash. I don't know why. It was like a thing. It was just like he would see the person in charge of the trash, which was me. Later on, it was my brother. It's like whenever he saw me, he's like, take out the trash. And I did it because I was his son. That is what I was required to do as being part of the family, as being one of his heirs. Or you could even think about this in the workplace. If you went to, if you got hired by an employer and you never went to work, never did any work, you never did anything regarding the work, at some point you'd say, hey, dude, you really were never part of that job to begin with. You never actually began the work. And that shouldn't be a sad commentary on the Christian's life. We should never be that person who never even started doing the work that God called us to do. And again, Jesus exemplifies this perfectly in Luke 2, 49, early on in his life. You remember that he stays at the temple and his parents go and see him. And what does he say to them? I must be about my father's business. That is the King James Version. And so he understood. I'm, there is work to be done. And so, again, in doing God's work, there's work to be done. It's God's. It needs to be done now. And it's our duty as believers, as heirs to Christ. And it's not too big of a task to ask. Christ died for our sins so that we can live eternally through him. The least we can do is go spread that message to others as well. And so those are the four points, again, that Boyce brings out that is originally from William Taylor. And so, belief is active in all those ways, in understanding God's dice and doing God's work. And the last thing is in saying and doing the work. Now, the parable here only gives us two scenarios. There's one son who says he won't do something and then does it, and there's another son who says he's going to do something and doesn't do it. Um, but neither one of those are necessarily op- the optimal um, son that you would want. Um, The optimal son would be that the son says he's going to do it, and then the son actually does what he says he's going to do. That is what the father would truly want the sons to do. Again, he would want, as we read in Exodus in the beginning, the people to say, yes, we will be obedient to the word of the Lord, and then actually follow through on that obedience Um, Sadly, again, as you look through their lives, they were often disobedient. But there are a few who did shine out as people who said what they were going to do and actually did what they were going to do. And I wanted to take a look at Daniel. So if you turn with me to Daniel real quick, he's kind of fresh in my mind because I just did a study with the young adults uh, in Daniel, which was a very fun study. 
Um, every time you open up a text that you're a little less familiar with, it's always fun because you learn so much and you think, how did I miss this um, growing up? Um, so I encourage you to read Daniel if you ever have a chance. But Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, we read about Daniel. Again, he's being taken captive from his homeland, from, and he is put into uh, a different scenario where he's trying, the king is trying to convince all the young studs, so to speak, to um, kind of be on his side and follow his ways. And this is what it says about Daniel. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And so again, the king's trying to tempt them. Um, there's the food that would have probably been offered to idols or unclean, according to the Jews. And D Daniel, I like what it says, Daniel resolves. He says to himself, he says to God that I am not going to do that. And so there's two things that could happen. Either God, he is going to do what he says or he is not going to do what he says. And then we learn from the account that therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And you can read that chapter. God obviously is working through Daniel's life because of his obedience. And he ends up um, eating only vegetables. And he is, as it says in, in verse 20, and in every matter of wisdom, after a certain amount of time and understanding about which the queen, king inquired of them, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians, enchanters, and all that were in the kingdom. And so because of Daniel's obedience, he blessed them in that way so that they could be a light to a very sinful world at that time. And we see all through Daniel's life, he says what he's going to do, and he does it. He is obedient to the Father. And because of that, you can see the impact that he has on Babylon and all the other places that take over them um, because of his obedience. And again, I just wanted to point him out because um, we should be admiring those people. We should read about those people very closely. And we should, as they say in Sermons about Daniel, dare to be like Daniel, right? We need to learn from his good example. Often we learn from bad examples, but Daniel is one of those people we could look at and say we should try to exemplify his behaviors and how he served the Lord his God. And so we should be those like Danny who say what we're going to do, that we are going to be obedient to the word, and then we should actually be obedient to the word. So, belief is active in understanding God's desires and doing his work and in saying and doing God's work. But belief is also, or the second point is unbelief is also active. This gets into our second half of this parable, which he asked, which of the two did the will of his father? And they quickly answer, and at least in my man, right? I kind of picture them, he asked the question, like, the first, the first, the first. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting because the last question Jesus answered them in verse 25, he says, the baptism of John, where did it come from? They had to discuss it among themselves. They're like, how are we going to answer this question? And I'm like, hey, we can answer this question. It's the first. 
Sadly, they answered to their own demise because Jesus was referring to them when he was talking about the second. And so by their own admission, they are saying that the first one is the one who did the will of the Father. And again, Jesus says that is why the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Now, obviously, we talked about tax collectors and prostitutes. These are like, of all the people to pick, this is the lowest of the lows in the minds of the religious leaders. The tax collectors were literally traitors to them, and obviously sinners in that matter, so they would want nothing to do with them, and the prostitutes would have represented the lowest of the low that you could go as far as sinners. And so... The fact that Jesus says those sinners are going to go into the kingdom of heaven before you would have been extremely offensive to, the, to them. And so their unbelief is active in blinding them. It's so interesting because they understood the parable. They got it. That being active in your faith is more important. It's more important to do the will of the Father than to say you are going to. And yet they couldn't see necessarily how it applied to them. And again, it's not that, it says before you, and I don't want it to be confusing that he's not saying that they'll eventually go. It's He's saying that they are going and you are not going. It's that they are closer to the kingdom of heaven than you are because they understand where they are in light of God's holiness, that they are the sinners. And it's so interesting because when you look at the Pharisees, we'll go to John chapter 1. They're always interested in what's happening regarding Jesus and John the Baptist and his message, but they never commit. It says in verse 19, And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you, neither, if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who... One, you do not know even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across from the Jordan where John was baptizing. So they're always interested. They're asking questions. Look, who are you? What are you doing? There's always kind of motives behind what they're asking. But regardless, they are curious at least on what is happening, but again, we look at, you don't have to turn there, I'm here already, Matthew 3, verse 7, it says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so John doesn't mess around at the same time with 
what their true intentions are. He calls them a brood of vipers. And he even tells them they should be bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. The problem is they didn't see their need to repent. So they were interested, but they never committed because they can never admit that they were those sinners who needed repentance. And so their unbelief is active in blinding themselves to the truth. They were asking questions, but they never really wanted to know. And that is pretty clear throughout all of Scripture with all the miracles. Jesus heals and people right in front of them. And their response to that is indignation. Again, because they didn't want to see the truth of who Jesus was. And so their unbelief is also active in blinding them and is also active in rejecting righteousness. He says to them, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom before you, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. Now that's an interesting statement, because that's where we kind of see the connection back to the authority section. Um, because John and Bo, or Jesus at both times refers back to John. And Jesus actually answers his initial question with that statement. His first question is the baptism of John, from where did it come from, heaven or from man? And now he tells you, for John came in the way of righteousness. What is he saying? He came to you from heaven. And that is something that they already knew. And Jesus, again, this is where we see the connection back to the initial question that they didn't want to answer. He says, they came in the way of righteousness, i.e. from heaven, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe in him. And so he again says, you even saw it. I know you did. And you didn't again change your mind and repent. And so their initial question of, where's your authority come from? Jesus is like, that's not even the question. The whole thing is you don't even believe in me. And even after you've seen all these things, you still don't believe in me. That is the real issue at hand. So they were active in their unbelief in rejecting righteousness. And again, when he says, John came to you in the way of the righteousness, is referring to both John and his ministry. And you can see in Matthew eleven eleven what John, Jesus says about um, John the Baptist. On your own time. <laughs> um, so, John showed he was from heaven. He came in the way of righteousness. This was not something new to them, but still they did not believe. The problem is they were actively rejecting God in their unbelief. And this is the human condition. Um, I was trying to think of ways in which I could illustrate this, so I have a few different graphs for you. So if you want to go to the first graph, Jonathan, that would be great. Thank you. Um, so this is what many people think about um, salvation. Um, there is this idea, there's man's position, and you have a straight line. If you can picture heaven on the top and hell on the bottom. And people can kind of get to choose and decide which way they want to go. And people have many religions, have many different ways in which this is possible. Maybe it's works, right? 
whether they do good or bad works. If they do bad works, they're going to start going down. If they do good works, they're going to start going up. Um, whatever it is, this is the probably most popular position as far as um, what many people think. And so if you go to the next slide, we see that, again, the idea is people will maybe live their life and they can choose to do either or, good or bad, and in this case, someone did good, and therefore they're going to go to heaven. But when we look at what Scripture says in the next slide, we'll see that that is not what Scripture says. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all familiar with that verse. Mark 7.21-22, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, and so on and so forth. Ephesians 5.8, For at one time you were in darkness. Isaiah 53, 6, for we all, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Um, as we are all going in our own way, we have all sinned. And then finally, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. By the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. And so hopefully we get a pretty good picture. This isn't even all the verses. There are plenty of verses we could turn to. But all the way from the beginning, all the way from Adam, there was disobedience. There was sin. And from Adam, I'm not saying anything new, hopefully, all of us are sinful. And so when you're thinking about that graph again, in the next one we see this is more so what the graph should look like. We're all sinners, right? We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have gone astray. We each are going our own way. We are all in that state of disobedience. We are all on our way down. It's not an even playing field. If we could, if it was an even playing field and we would have the opportunity to save ourselves, then what's the point of Christ coming back to save us? In that case, we don't even need Christ. The whole point is we are all on our way down. We are all sinners. And that is where Christ comes in, right? He takes us from being in a point where we are going our own way and he saves us, as we see in our next slide, right? He takes us from that point of disobedience to the point of obedience. As 2 Corinthians says, for our sake he made him to be sin so that in him we may become the righteousness of of God, right? He takes us from that place of going down to that place of being with him in heaven. And so, when you're thinking about their unbelief being active and blinding and in rejecting righteousness, that's what they were doing. They're on their way down, but the problem is they were in love with that. It's not just that they were Blinded, it's that they were blinding themselves to the truth. Again, they had the Son of God. They had the Messiah, God himself, among them. They were seeing the miracles he was doing. They were listening to the teachings that he had. And they still rejected him. They were still indignant towards him because they did not want to believe in him. And that is a very sad thing, because that is the way of the world today. 
And we like to think of people on that. It's easier to think of them on that line. It's easy not to think of them as going down to hell. Again, how many people? There are about one and a half billion people who are saved, but six and a half billion people who need to know Christ today. And not because they can choose, but because God needs to do the work in their lives through us to save them. Well, his work, using us as vessels to share his good news. I should be really clear on that one. All right, so unbelief is active in blinding and rejecting righteousness and in continual disobedience. Again, it's not that they had never heard that Jesus was the Son of God. Um, This is parable takes place towards the end of Jesus's ministry. He's almost about to die on the cross. They've had a few years of looking at his miracles, looking at his teaching. Even from the triumphal entry, people were just shouting, Hosanna, the son of David. The whole city was stirred up. He's healing people. He cleansed the temple. He's doing all these wonderful things. The kids even see it. The kids in the temple are crying, Hosanna, the son of David. And they're still indignant to this. Even after all that they saw, they did not change their minds and believe in him, as Jesus points out. And that is the way of the world. People aren't just like, oh yeah, Jesus. And more and more you see it. They'll tell you. They are indignant towards him. It's going against everything that they believe, everything with the whole sexual everything, right? They want to believe one thing, and you say another thing, and that's why they are indignant towards it, because they want to go their own way. They don't want a God to tell them what to do. And so as you're thinking about this, we need to remember that belief is active. We have work to do. We need to go into the vineyard today. There's a lot of people who need to hear the gospel today. And we need to remember that unbelief is active. We have a lot of work to do. And people don't want to hear the message. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. You have friends and family who you've probably tried to witness to and they just don't want to hear for it. We need to pray for them and we need to keep witnessing to them and we need to be a light to them in a world that's probably very dark for them. This is the gospel. We need to be going out into the world and preaching the gospel to all nations. And so, in conclusion, as we, again, we need to be active. We need to have the right perspective in life, that our life is geared towards doing God's work. And we need to be looking for those people who need to be saved. Uh, With that, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we have to come together to look at your word. I pray that as we go out into the world that we'd be remembering the things we learned. Again, there are many people who do not know you as your Savior. Um, Many people in our circles. and It's obviously a very saddening thing for us to think about, but I pray that we would use that as momentum that we need to be praying for those people, to be witnessing to those people. And I pray that you would work in their lives, that you would 
help them to see their need of a Savior, that they can't get to you on their own, on their own um, that they can have freedom from their sin, that they can not only have freedom from it, but they can be made righteous through um, your life and death and sacrifice on the cross. And we just thank you and praise you for everything you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.